You're listening to Collab Chats, a podcast from the Temple University Collaborative on Community Inclusion. The Collaborative is part of Temple University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and we've spent the last 15 years of focusing on full and meaningful community participation of individuals with serious mental illness. The Collaborative receives funding as a National Rehabilitation Research and Training Center from the National Institute on Disability, Independent Living, and Rehabilitation Research. I am your host, Kira Baker. Today, we're talking with Dr. Judith Cook, an internationally recognized authority on mental health services research, specifically the study of clinical and rehabilitation outcomes of children and adults receiving community-based care. She directs the Center on Integrated Healthcare and Self-Directed Recovery, along with numerous grants focused on intervention science and psychiatric epidemiology. She designs and implements innovative programs to enhance health and behavioral health of vulnerable populations. She works with federal, state, and local authorities on behavioral health service system redesign and alternative financing strategies. Her recent work focuses on randomized controlled trials of evidence-based practice treatments for serious mental illness and outcomes of individuals with co-occurring mental illness and chronic medical conditions. She consults with federal agencies, including the National Institutes of Health, Social Security Administration, Department of Labor, Government Accountability Office, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, and Veterans Administration. She's currently the principal investigator for the first national study of the prevalence of psychiatric and substance use disorders among women living with HIV and or AIDS. Welcome, Judith, and thank you for talking with me today. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Um, Can you tell me a bit about what got you into mental health services research? Sure. For about 11 years, I was the research director of a large community mental health program in Chicago called Thresholds. And Thresholds serve people with mental health disabilities using the psychosocial rehabilitation model. And this model focuses on recovery through achieving normative adult roles. So what this means is that people were helped to get jobs, to live independently in the community in their own houses or apartments, to attain further education, to develop a satisfying social network and participate in their communities, and to take care of their physical and mental health. So studying all those outcomes was a tall order, (laughs) and it led me into um, figuring out ways to uh, measure not only changes in uh, people's abilities um, in all those different areas, but different methodologies that would best capture those changes. That is quite the experience that you have. Um, And you're currently the director of the Center on Mental Health Services Research and Policy. How did the center start and how has it evolved over the years? Well, I was recruited to run the center at the University of Illinois at Chicago's Department of Psychiatry in 1995. And soon after we arrived, we were awarded our second five-year Rehabilitation Research and Training Center grants from the federal agencies NIDR and SAMHSA. And we also won other grants, such as a multi-site study of evidence-based supported employment and another multi-site study of children's mental health care in fee-for-service versus managed care environments. 
Through the years since then, we've been fortunate enough to receive additional grants, contracts, and cooperative agreement awards that allow us to engage in our investigations um, and expand um, what we've studied and how we've studied it. That's really amazing. Um, and how how long has the center been operating now? You started there a few years after it started? Um, the center's been operating since 1995. Okay. Um, I'd like to talk about one of your recently published research articles called Mental Health Self-Directed Care Financing, Efficacy in Improving Outcomes and Controlling Costs for Adults with Serious Mental Illness. Can you describe the self-directed care model you tested in this study? Sure. Um, Self-directed care is a model that was originally proposed by the federal government, specifically the Centers on Medicare and Medicaid Financing. They were interested in ways that people with disabilities, in this case not including mental illness, but physical disabilities and the elderly um, and people with developmental disabilities, could have greater self-determination in um, service utilization in the community. So what they asked was the following question. What if we spent the same amount of money that we would spend um, by giving the money directly to a service delivery agency, but made that same amount more flexibly available to the person, him or herself, so that they could choose what service providers they wanted? And what if we also allowed them to make some home modifications to accommodate their disabilities, to purchase some things that would directly uh, improve their health, um, and just overall in general have more control over the service delivery dollar? And they propose that this model should have four components. Um, first, that a person-centered plan be developed. So that's very different from a treatment plan. Uh, this is a plan that lays out how an individual views their life and what kind of life they'd like to have. And it focuses as much on what's right with their life as what's wrong with their life. Um, and in particular, deals with what's referred to as a circle of support. And that's people in the individual's environment, only some of whom are service providers, who are going to help them uh, achieve the elements in their plan. Now, in addition to the person-centered plan, um, the uh, CMS suggested that a budget be created so that the individual um, would be able to track how they were spending uh, the service delivery dollars um, and what kinds of goods that they wanted to purchase and, and other services. Um, they also wanted a service broker who is not a service provider. It's somebody that helps you use the self-directed care plan. Um, but the service broker would be like when you buy an insurance, um, uh, you know, car insurance, um, you might go to an insurance broker and they don't represent one specific insurance company. They can pick and choose between different companies to help you pick the best car insurance or home insurance. And that's what a broker does too. They don't, they're not employed at a particular agency um, or in a particular service delivery arena. They help the participant choose what kinds of services um, they want in a car 
conflict of interest-free environment. That was very important to the federal government. And finally, the last component was that an organization called a fiscal intermediary would actually be the um, organization um, through which the Medicaid dollars would flow um, so that it would go from the federal to the state um, and then into the um, budget so that the individual could um, spend the money. People don't actually get the money in the mail, um, <laughs> but um, they uh, get you know this chance to make the plan and the budget and have the budget approved, and then the brokers help them um, purchase services or, or purchase goods in a variety of, of different kinds of ways. So that's basically how self-directed care works. How, how do people get the money? Um, there's a variety of different ways um, in the Texas Self-Directed Care Program, which I studied in the article you talked about earlier. People were given debit cards, um, and uh, they uh, we loaded money onto those debit cards in the same way that you would do it with any debit card, um, right before a person was going to make a purchase. Um, and then we were able to monitor online when the purchase was made, um, and uh, that happened in, in that particular way. And then sometimes the fiscal intermediary is directly paying service providers, uh, so the services are being uh, purchased in that way. Okay. Um, and these four components that you just described, they were uh, put forth by CMS? Yes, pretty much. Mm -hmm. um, I had a question about the circle of support component. Um, who is involved in the circle of support? Anyone that's in the individual's environment okay. who they feel that they can um, count on or ask for support and help in reaching the goals in their person-centered plan. Okay, so these are natural supports and not uh, service providers or practitioners? <laughs> That's a good question. So the circle of support can include anyone. Okay. So it includes service providers, um, but most people's circle of support is broader than that. So it might include neighbors. It might include um, uh, clergy. It might include uh, friends and family members. Um, so it's, it's a broad circle of people that can be um, counted on um, to, to assist the individual, sometimes in really informal ways, to achieve the goal in their person-centered plan. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the Texas Self-Directed Care Program that you just touched on briefly. Uh, how, and you designed this for the study, yes? Yes, that's correct. We designed it actually um, with the surrounding community in the Dallas and surrounding county um, area. Um, and we designed it um, as a collaboration between my university and the Texas Department of State Health Services uh, Program on Mental Health. Um, and we included peer organizations and family organizations, the service providers, the managed care company that was um, in the local community, and then also the um, uh, local mental health authority, the North Texas uh, Behavioral Health Authority. We, we all designed it together. How did the staff uh, work with participants? Well, the service broker staff in this um, program were called advisors. They liked the name advisors more than service brokers. And they helped um, the SDC participant use the program. So they enrolled the person into SDC and provided them with an orientation because it is a very different way of receiving services. They helped them develop their person-centered plan and create a budget that would go along with that. 
Um, they were responsible for taking the budget to the program director and having it approved. Um, and then they helped the person spend their money um, through uh, purchasing services or goods and supports. A critical role of the advisors was to suggest what we call service substitutions in self-directed care. And this is the idea that you can substitute for more formal services other things that will help the individual reach the same goal. So um, one kind of service substitution is to um, substitute an informal service for a formal service. So the formal service might be you going to your mental health center's exercise group, where the informal service might be um, getting a gym membership and working out at the local gym, which, by the way, you know, leads you to participate in your community much more so than what you might do at a mental health center. Um, sometimes a service substitution is to take a traditional service and substitute a non-traditional one. So a good example of that was getting support um, uh, from a peer rather than a case manager. People did both, but there was this opportunity to make the choice. You could also um, get services from service providers who were in the private system, not just the public system. So that was another kind of service substitution. Uh, what kinds of things did you see people purchasing? They purchased a lot of different things. Um, they they um, bought the traditional services, such as um, psychiatrist and um, uh, case manager, uh, peer supporters, and psychotherapists. But they also bought things like communication devices, like cell phones and data plans and Internet access. Um, they purchased transportation aids such as bus passes and taxi cab fares, and one gentleman bought a used bike to get back and forth to work. For their jobs, people bought tools and uniforms or paid for trade licenses or certificates. Several people didn't have clothing appropriate for a job interview, so they bought business casual clothing. And to work on their physical health, people purchased access to a gym or health club, um, athletic shoes. Some we, we had some people that only had flip-flops to wear on their feet oh. or services from a personal trainer. We asked people to spend 60% of their budget on traditional services and 40% on non-traditional services. But we were willing to flex that um, if they were um, making good progress and had been um, spending their money in a responsible um, fashion. So by the end of the program, some people were spending most of their money on traditional services and others were spending their money on non-traditional services. What really mattered, though, was that anything they purchased had to be tied to a recovery goal. Mm -hmm. That was critical. They couldn't just buy something because they wanted it. Right. They needed to, let's say, get a cell phone because they needed to uh, return calls from potential employers and to stay connected to their families for um, social interaction and community participation. Right. And it, it couldn't be just any new outfit. It would be maybe an outfit to go to a job interview. Exactly. Okay. And it's uh, really interesting, too, how all of the non-traditional services that you mentioned 
are all things that very much promote community participation and inclusion. Yeah, I, I really think that um, a lot of what self-directed care does is it enables people to accomplish the same goals, but through engagement in their community and using natural supports um, and accessing things that they wouldn't normally have access to um, because of um, lack of finances. Why don't we see uh, the self-directed care model being used in more states? That's a really good question because it is widely used for people with other kinds of disabilities, um, the elderly, um, and uh, even like at-risk youth, for example. Um, so I think one of the reasons is that um, People have traditionally um, had uh, the misperception that people with uh, mental health difficulties um, aren't good decision makers. Um, and as a result, um, the thought that they would have control over financial resources um, for some people is a stretch. I think that um, people that work directly with um, individuals that are in recovery um, from serious mental health conditions realize that this isn't the case. Um, but I think it's a, a, a stigma that persists and maybe explains why this is one of the last groups um, to, to get to use this kind of model. What significant findings uh, did you identify from the study? Well, the first thing that we found was that people's outcomes were better in SDC than in the um, control condition. And the people in the control condition um, continued to receive services as usual um, using, you know, the regular service delivery system um, in the area where the, the research um, was mounted. So people in SDC um, had more hopefulness. They had a greater sense of uh, recovery from mental illness. They had more uh, feelings of self-efficacy, of being able to take action um, and influence their life. They were less likely to um, experience somatic symptoms, which are the physical signs of distress, um, like heart palpitations and um, feeling weak in parts of your body. Um, they were less likely to feel those things. And that might be because a lot of folks did spend at least part of their budget on wellness and physical health um, uh, aids and, and services and, and supports. Um, but in addition to all of these positive outcomes, um, they spent no more money on average than people in the control condition. And for some specific kinds of services, they actually spent less money. Um, so they spent less money on um, social skills training, for example, and they spent less money on case management. Uh, interestingly, they spent more money on psychotherapy which was not a service that they could get easily through the community mental health um, system. That is interesting. But overall, it was a budget-neutral model. That's another uh, feature that CMS insists that self-directed care adhere to. So what it's really all about is um, getting better outcomes for the same service delivery dollar. Mm -hmm. um, I remember you saying a few minutes ago that CMS... Uh, wanted to use this model to promote self-determination. Did you find that that happened? Very much so. Um, 
people in the self-directed care program um, also scored higher on a scale that measured whether they were being served in environments that promoted their autonomy, um, which is just another word for self-determination. Um, and uh, you know, people in the control condition were um, in service delivery environments that they rated as much lower in promoting their choice and autonomy and self-control. What suggestions do you have for people who would like to start a self-directed care program? Well, our center created a uh, free product that shows you how to do just that. Oh, It's called the Self-Directed Care Implementation Manual. And you can get it on our center's website at www.center, the number four, healthandsdc.org. And that manual takes you through the steps of um, forming a planning committee to bring SDC to your local area and garnering the um, support of key stakeholders like the funders of services in your local area. The manual also tells you how to staff an SDC program, how to create policies and procedures, how to evaluate it, and um, it, it provides examples of the paperwork that you'll need, like the person-centered plan and the budgets um, that will um, help you be able to run your self-directed care program. So it's a really thorough manual if anyone wants to implement this. Yes. That's fantastic. Um, well, thank you so much for talking with me today, Judith. Uh, we really appreciate it. It was a real pleasure, Kira. Thank you. Thank you. Collab Chats is a knowledge translation activity developed by the Rehabilitation Research and Training Center on community living and participation for individuals with serious mental illnesses. To learn more about the work that we do, visit our website at tucollaborative.org. You can find us on Facebook at Temple University Collaborative on Community Inclusion and on Instagram and Twitter at TUCollab. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to discuss it with us, email us at tucollab at temple.edu. Funding for this podcast and support for the Rehabilitation Research and Training Center on Community Living and Participation for Individuals with Serious Mental Illnesses comes from the National Institute on Disability, Independent Living, and Rehabilitation Research. The contents of this podcast do not necessarily represent the policies of NIDLR, ACL, HHS, and you should not assume endorsement by the U.S. federal government. <laughs>